Hi, everybody. I'm Jordan Ostroff with Legalese Marketing, and this is Exhibit A Attorneys, where we interview attorneys and other experts across the country to talk about what it truly takes to be the Exhibit A of a successful attorney. Joining me today, Eric Pelton. Eric has launched his trademark law practice in 1999, following a position on the other side as an examiner in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. His firm represents clients in all aspects of trademark clearance, registration, maintenance, transactions, and disputes. The firm is particularly experienced in the federal trademark registration process, obtaining more than 3,500 USPTO registrations on behalf of clients, as well as proceedings before the Trademark Trial and Appeals Board. Today, he's going to talk to us about protecting your brand, a beginner's guide to trademarks and copyrights. Anything I left out, Eric? No, that's a good, uh, you know, it's hard to capture 20 years in a couple sentences, but that was great. <laughs> The, I don't remember what I was watching uh, or listening to, but they were talking about like you're in college for, you know, four years, seven years, if you count law school, maybe a little bit longer. And it's like in that time, you're like, all right, I'm on this board. I did this. I did that. I did this. And then the minute you get done, you're like, so-and-so went to college at blah, blah, blah. And like, that's it. And you take that whole time frame and it's, you know, one or maybe two sentences with law school. So uh, that's what life is all about, right? Making your story shorter and shorter as you add more chapters to your book. I like that. Um, all right, so we're going to talk about protecting your brand, a beginner's guide to trademarks and copyrights. After this episode, if you want to hear more from the Exhibit A show, I'd urge you to watch our previous episode that starred Craig Goldenfarb, who talked to us about five ways to keep your employees happy and reduce turnover. Uh, Craig came to us from a 75-person law firm that he oversees that has like zero, almost zero turnover. So pretty impressive stuff over there. But enough about that. Eric. So when we're talking about protecting our brand, I guess the first question is, what is a trademark and what is a copyright and or what is the difference? Yeah, great place to start. And of course, uh, critical, critical to know, not only in advising clients if the issues comes up, but in thinking about our own brands and our own uh, content and materials. So a trademark is, um, is a brand, is a name, or a logo or a slogan that helps separate you from your competitor. So the XYZ firm is a brand name and they might have a logo that goes with it. And those would be things that they could protect as trademarks. Now to further complicate things, they would technically be called service marks because attorneys, law firms, or other service providers like accountants or even restaurants and many websites and web-based services are providing services rather than tangible products uh, and goods, but all of them are lumped together under the protect under the name and uh, <laughs> term of trademarks. Uh, and then copyright is where we talk about protecting content, content that's being created. You know, originally eons ago, it was original artwork, it was sculptures, it was paintings, you think of, you know, a Da Vinci or a Michelangelo, that's a copyright. But in 2021, it's not only works of art like that, it's the content on your website, it's videos and podcasts like what we're making right now, that is original content that has uh, value and has ownership and has protection. Now, what about a logo? Does that fall under a trademark? So logo kind of straddles, but it's primarily trademark because when you protect it as a trademark, you're protect you're getting much 
stronger protection in my opinion and you're protecting it as it relates to your brand and your services a very very creative logo might also be eligible for copyright protection in terms because it is a piece of art but most logos especially now the trend is to really simplify things particularly because we're on mobile so much and online so much and um so a simple logo is probably not eligible for copyright protection and uh, always going to be eligible for trademark protection. And so uh, this may be a stupid question or this may be the most complicated question I've ever asked. Obviously we're talking about them covering different things, but other than the fact that they encompass different types of things, is there a huge difference between like how you get a trademark versus how you get a copyright? Yes, yes. So also the nature of the protection and the way that you go about registering them or protecting them is different. And in both trademark and copyright, you have some protection under common law just from using it. Uh, to protect a trademark, you file with the US Patent and Trademark Office. And it's a in-depth year long or so process that has many requirements that you have to meet and it gets reviewed by an attorney and examiner at the Patent and Trademark Office to meet all of the um, statutory and procedural qualifications. A copyright to get protect to get the registration protection protection gets filed with the Library of Congress, and that process also takes a long time because they're very backed up, as is the Patent and Trademark Office. But the review of it is much um, less in depth. It's it's not quite just that you provided all the information on the form, but it's much much closer to that in terms of what it takes to get the copyright registration. And many people file copyrights on their own without using counsel. Uh, and then if there ever was a dispute in litigation, the actual merits of whether it was protectable and how protectable would be on, would get evaluated more in depth at that time with the copyright. So before we dive into sort of the, you know, where a law firm would fall in this and what can be tra uh, trademarked, what can be copyrighted, What's, what are some of the most famous examples of a rebrand and issue litigation around, you know, either of these issues? Sure. So I, you mentioned examples. So I just want to give one example to help, like, help everybody understand name, logo, slogan, and what's protected. And the example that everybody uh, is familiar with is Nike. So Nike has several different trademarks in that the Nike name is protected and that's protected regardless of whether they use it with a logo or a font or a design and the swoosh logo is protected separately so that the logo is protected whether they use it with the word nike or whether on the side of a shoe or the front of a shirt or a, a tag it might just have the swoosh so the logo is very powerful branding and then the just do it slogan is yet another trademark that they would also have protected. And in terms of copyright, you can think about if Nike airs a commercial starring Tiger Woods or LeBron James, the content of that commercial, the video, the script, those type of things would be the artwork that's protected under copyright law. So in terms of a rebrand um, gone wrong, what we find more often than not is that public reaction is much more likely to cause problems than uh, litigation when it comes to rebranding. Famous example is New Coke. Uh, back when I was, a, I was a child and, you know, they spent 
when I say millions, I'm sure that's way underestimating probably billions of dollars in researching and getting ready to release new Coke and the public backlash to the brand and to the product was so big that they changed everything. And you'll remember for a while it was Coke classic. And then it was just back to Coke, you know, Coke and Coca-Cola. Um, but even more subtle things like the gap a few years ago tried to change their logo and they spent a lot of money with experts on, you know, preparing this rebrand and designing logos. And the moment it was launched on social media, people just destroyed it. And within two or three days, they had backed off the, um, the new logo. And today, just like uh, it's always been, it's still that classic uh, gap, simple font logo that's out there. But litigation, of course, is a tremendous concern, particularly when launching new brands. Whether you're a law firm, any type of business, when you're launching a new brand, you want to make sure that the name is cleared up front before you commit to it, before you think about registering it, to make sure that you're uh, you know, avoiding as much risk as possible, that there's somebody already out there in your industry using a similar brand name. So, I mean, are there law firms? So there, there, there would be law firms that have launched that have had to, you know, change their whole name and everything based upon something being trademarked? There are. There are disputes between law firms over trademarks and brands. I mean, it's probably less common. Part of that is because traditionally law firms have had less creative branding, um, you know, with a, a lot of last names or somebody's name, often as the name of the firm then you're less likely to run into a conflict. But there have been plenty of conflicts over time. And per, I think it's probably getting more prevalent as more firms use outside the box names that are more creative um, where there are disputes. And it's not just about the name of the overall firm. It could be the name of a service or the name of a course, for example, that a lawyer might offer that has a brand that could have a conflict. And, and we've actually gotten involved in several of those over time. Yeah, because like, I can't imagine. So like in the state of Texas, you have to use your name as the law firm name. So I can't imagine that, you know, the law firm of John Smith being trademark prevents you from being able to open up a law firm, because your name's John Smith, and that's what it has to be. Yeah, that's a, you know, sort of unique area of the trademark law where it's, you know, it's your own name. I think it would be very hard for John Smith to stop another John Smith from calling them their law firm John Smith. Um, and in general, a name, a surname, you have less protection in because there is some value to allowing the public to, you know, to have use, to have, if, um, taking it outside the law firm, you know, environment, just if there were, if there were Smith shoe repair, what if some other Smith on the other side of the country also wants to go into the shoe repair and, and use their name, but McDonald's, you know, is a not uncommon. McDonald's is not an uncommon surname. And yet McDonald's is a very strong brand covering not only restaurants and fast food, but lots of, they've successfully enforced their brand against lots of people because the bigger your brand grows and the more you invest in protecting and promoting your brand, you're also going to get stronger protection for it over time, even if it starts out weaker. Gotcha. So from the law firm perspective, I mean, best practice would be trademarking everything on day one. 
Best practice is certainly making sure that it's clear on day one, that you're not okay. stepping on somebody else's toes, so to speak, so that you don't run the risk of launching a website, launching your marketing, launching your, you're getting your brand out there and then getting a letter from someone six months later saying, we believe you're infringing and we demand you stop. So you want to do a full clearance search upfront. And then ideally you do want to start the registration process as early as possible. You can even start the registration process before you've launched, before you're doing commerce to get in line at the USPTO and protect yourself in the, in the interim. Now, if your brand name is, is like we discussed just someone's name or is a, you know, sort of boring, um, it's not going to be as important to protect it. It's still important to clear it. Uh, but particularly if there's anything unique or creative about it, it's really worth thinking about the investment to protect it because it's not a tremendous investment. So can somebody check to clear a name themselves or they need to hire you or another expert? It's There are places you can search on your own. The USPTO has a database called the TESS database that's freely available, but it is a archaic complex government database. So to really ensure that you're searching thoroughly, it's best to work with someone who's experienced. Of course, you can search the internet as well, but to really know how to construct a search and to evaluate a search does take a level of skill and experience that somebody who's not in the world of trademarks is, is probably not going to have. And wouldn't you'd also have to check um, any state specific registries as well, right? Yeah. So ideally um, you want to check nationwide and you can also check when you order from someone generally a nationwide search, it's going to include state databases. And particularly with the internet now, almost, you know, so many businesses are nationwide. For law firms, some might be limited to just their local area, depending on what type of practice you do. Like one of the benefits for me of doing trademark practice is that it's almost all federal. And so we work with clients all over the country and all over the world. Makes total sense. So from that clearance standpoint, I mean, name, logo, any slogans or taglines, you know, what else should you be checking? Yeah, the name is far and away the most important because God forbid you have to tweak or change your logo. That's not as big of an undertaking. A slogan is, you know, even an easier undertaking. It's the brand name that's far and away the most important. And logos, for the most part, um, if there's any creativity to them, they're much more likely to be available and not a problem. Now, you know, for, for a law firm example, let's say if your logo is just the scales of justice in, you know, in a plain color, that might not be unique, but the inverse problem or in this situation benefit is that if there's a hundred other people already using some variation of that logo, you're probably safe because it's going to be very hard for any one of them to try to stop you it's because it's already so weak. Makes total sense. Um, what about social media handles? I mean, like what, what other trademark should somebody, should a law firm be worried about having? Yeah. Social media handles could be if they're, if they're different from the firm and if they're creative, um, the thing that we're seeing come up more and more in the last two years or so, I would say is course titles is lawyers who are getting into, you know, not just content creation for marketing purposes, but actually creating courses for clients or courses for other lawyers. 
um, that if they have creative names for those, that there's a real value in clearing and protecting those. And same also with, with podcasts, frankly, you know, I, I have a podcast as well um, called tricks of the trademark. And I, you know, I went out on day one and protected that name. I don't want there to be any confusion if somebody else creates a trademark uh, creates a podcast about trademarks. God bless them. I just don't want them using a similar name. So, okay. So you would be trade. So even on a, in theory, this podcast is a work of art. We would still be trademarking the name, but then copywriting the individual episodes. Exactly. The, the, the brand is still protected by trademark and the content of the episodes is protected by copyright. And you almost certainly would not go out and register each episode with the Library of Congress. Maybe you do one episode as an example, um, you know, and what you want to do is make sure that you use a copyright notice when you post about the podcast. So in the description of the podcast or on the webpage that's hosting the podcast, ideally you want to put, you know, copyright 2001 ABC Inc. Um, and claim ownership that way, because that's the most important step to having those common law protections in the copyright, which is generally sufficient to stop someone. The, the difference is that you can't sue for the same statutory damages that you can if it's registered. But again, it's going to be very onerous to register repeatedly. So literally just putting that, you know, C in the circle with a year has is helpful? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, all right, sorry. Now I'm getting feedback. Is that coming on anybody else's end? Sounds okay. All right. Um, so then what other, you know, tips, tricks, insight, wisdom do you have when it comes to these trademark and copyright issues for a law firm? So first, any law firm that's working with businesses and startups should absolutely be thinking about this in terms of their toolkit to discuss with their clients. Um, but in terms of law firm itself is really what, you know, my, one of my mantras is practice what we preach. So if we're going to be telling clients that they ought to be protecting themselves, we ought to be taking the steps to protect ourselves as well. So when you come up for, with creative brand names, you know, other assets that law firms have, I mentioned courses or podcasts, but could be a blog title, a newsletter title, you know, there's, all, there's a series of other content items as well, an app, you know, um, where you may have a creative name and you want to think about ensuring that you're properly protecting it. Makes perfect sense. I mean, that's the, uh, it's the burden I bear as a marketing company, right? We have to market in the same way that we would tell our law firm uh, clients to market themselves. Right, right. And, you know, one other place where IP protections are often overlooked by all types of businesses, including I'm sure law firms, is in contracts. So when you're working with a web developer, an app developer, um, a podcast host, whatever it is, you want to ensure, you want to review what the IP terms are in the agreement, and you want to make sure that your IP is protected. So for example, under copyright law, there's a principle called work for hire, where if you're paying a contractor to make content for you, and that can it often includes developing a website, unless your contract specifically has the contractor grant you back the full copyright 
control and ownership, the contractor may own the actual rights and the materials. And this leads to disputes where the web developers can, um, you know, try to stop use of the site or of the materials if ever there's a disagreement about the payment or the contract between them. So in all agreements with contractors, employees, partners, is checking the IP provisions, making sure, probably having an IP lawyer review them, making sure that the firm's content and the firm's brands are specified and are protected in them. So uh, selfish shout out, if you check our contracts clients, you, you have that because we are not uh, that kind of marketing company that I won't put anybody else on blast, but that's, uh, we've seen that a bunch from other companies. So that definitively happens all the time. You pay a bunch for a website and then you go to move companies and find out that you don't own the website. So exactly. So I want to, all right. So anything else along the lines of the trademarks and copyrights, otherwise I want to change gears for, you know, another five or 10 minutes. Let's change gears. Okay. So from a, from a marketing branding success perspective, obviously you've got that amazing background in the um, patent and trademark office from the other side as an examiner. I think we see a ton of PI lawyers who used to be insurance defense attorneys. We see criminal defense attorneys who used to be prosecutors. So for the, for the lawyers ready to switch sides and go out on their own, what advice do you have for them when it comes to that, you know, benefit in marketing, that benefit in your sales pitch, that benefit in your branding to have that knowledge of the other side? Yeah, that absolutely has been a large selling point, particularly earlier in my career where I had less experience. And so I couldn't sell myself on experience. The only things I had to sell myself on were price and the experience being on the other side. I mean, I didn't have the years of experience, I had, but I had the insider knowledge. And particularly in the world of trademarks where you have to go, you know, run the gamut to get through the application process, run the gauntlet, sorry, to get through the application process. Knowing that process from the inside is so tremendously valuable to know how it works, how the examiners are going to be looking at things and then presenting things already with that in mind. And it's been tremendously helpful in terms of guiding clients and in terms of marketing uh, the business for sure. Well, I always think it's also a lot easier to share stories from that other side perspective because you're not worried about client confidentiality when you were the government or the insurance company or you know whatever it is along those lines. Yeah, that's that's a that's an interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> when did you find yourself? I, I don't. I, I can't imagine your transition away from sharing that background. But obviously, with thirty five hundred registrations you've done now as an attorney, you you have that component that you you know felt you were lacking at the beginning. When did you start incorporating that? When did you start you know making some of that shift? Like walk us through that process. I so I incorporated the former examiner right away, and like my all my. I, you know, I'd have to go back and check, but I'm fairly sure that all my original like Google AdWords content, you know, was basically former, former USPTO examiner. That was really the only thing that mattered in there. Um, over the years, I still use that repeatedly, but now I have such a library of content that I've created and I can talk about years of experience and track record of success and referrals 
and so much more. So it's really just become, instead of it being the thing in my portfolio, now it's one of, you know, a half a dozen core things in my portfolio that I focus on in my materials. But was there, was there a moment that you felt like you could add that part? I mean, was it at the five-year mark? Was it at the 500th registration? Like, was there a, was there a time moment where you felt like you had that? I think it was a, about a thousand registrations where I felt like now it's okay to count and counting really doesn't mean, you know, it means high volume, which means obviously some measure of success, but, um, but again, I wouldn't rely just on that. Just because somebody said they filed 5,000 trademarks doesn't necessarily mean that they're good at it. Um, it means that they've either done a huge volume in a short term or they've been around for a long time. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly what it was. And then when I do remember consciously at the time, I launched my firm in December of 1999. And I remember consciously at the time, okay, this is good five, six, seven years from now, it's going to sound like I've been around for even longer when I can say since 1999, the last millennia, the prior millennia. Um, but it evolved into where we actually have a slogan now that I have on my, my coffee mug right here that says making trademarks bloom since 1999. It's not focusing on it, but making trademarks bloom since 1999. So again, always focusing on the fact that we've been around for a long time and we've been doing it for many, many years now with many, many happy clients. And so that really became a transition. And then I, as I came up on 20, I remember 10th anniversary was kind of a big deal. And then as I got close to the 20th anniversary of the law firm, I really focused on that. I threw a party and invited local clients and colleagues and friends and former uh, interns and things like that. And so that's when I really was like, wow, 20 years, that's a huge milestone. And I did a lot of marketing around that at the time too. Since the nineties, since the last millennium. I love it. You got <laughs> in, you got right in, in time there. Right. So what else do you want to make sure that we cover here? I mean, I know it's, it's very interesting to me because you've got the understanding of lawyers need to do this. And a lot of lawyers need to know enough about this to get their clients to you, the right expert, whatever it is along those lines. So we've got kind of that, not double-edged sword. We've got kind of that two ways to look at this concept, but you know, what are we, did I miss anything? Uh, no, no. I think, you know, comprehensive discussion. You ask great questions. Thanks, Jordan. <laughs> well, I know absolutely nothing about what you do. I don't mean that like you definitively, right. like I, I am the lawyer who is, who I was a prosecutor. I did criminal defense. I did personal injury. Like nowhere did I touch anything along these lines. So I am and and yet with marketing, uh, what I was going to say is just, but marketing is all about content and, you know, feeding it into a brand. And so it really ties it all together. Um, and that's why I enjoy marketing so much um, and thinking of the law firm as a business and creating content and it really all ties together with the branding. Well, yeah, it's, it's always not easier but like when you've got the, you know, when you've got that meta ability in it, it does make it somewhat easier. You know, I can post a video about how to post videos. You know, you can write articles right. about how to protect exactly. the brand in a brand that you've got protected. So, and I would, I guess, you know, as a tip, I would say for lawyers, and I'm guilty of this too with my firm name of Eric M. Pelton and Associates, not very creative, obviously, but we do try to use EMP and A, and we do use 
making trademarks bloom since 1999, which has that creative flower aspect to it. And, and, you know, I have creative names for my newsletter, my podcast, when I had an app back in the day, like all kinds of things is like, you know, be creative and help set yourself apart thinking about it just like any other business or brand, because the car dealership that calls itself, you know, the route seven used cars on route seven, you know, if I, somebody says, where'd you get that? And I said, uh, I don't know that car dealership on route seven, you know, when they search car dealership on route seven, they're going to find 50 results. Whereas if it was, a, you know, a creative brand name and they said, we got it at Don Buyer Volvo, that's at least more creative than Route 7. Um, we got it at Don Buyer Volvo. Well, then if you search Don Buyer Volvo, you're only finding one result, right? You're, you're, you know that the people looking for it or the people being told about it are coming to the right place and your brand's not getting lost. See, because I have the opposite from the marketing standpoint. You know, you've got the opportunity, not the guarantee, but the opportunity of better SEO being, you know, Route 7 car dealership or Orlando, blah, 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 or, you know, whatever it is, because as people make that search not tied to your brand, you've got so much of that content showing up with it being in your name. So I do understand that it's a constant, you know, push and pull, I think, because you want a name that people are searching for that, of course, that is going to make easier for people to find you, but it's going to make it harder to stand out from the crowd. So, you know, the other examples that I use, if you look at almost all of the breakthrough, tremendously successful brands in our lives now for the last 10 years, Netflix, Uber, Amazon, I mean, they're all eBay, they're all creative names. And, you know, you don't find them, uh, hotels.com is like one exception, but what sounds more exciting, hotels.com or Travelocity or Expedia? Like if somebody says, I found this on Expedia, that's a memorable name. I'm not going to forget that. If they said, I found it on, I don't know, hotels.com, then maybe you type in hotel.com or maybe, you know, maybe you, you don't know exactly what it was. So I would, I, you know, I wrote a book called building a bold brand. And I really believe that it's worth it to be bold and to stand out from the crowd. And maybe it does make that SEO a little bit more challenging, but I think that the, the payoff uh, is tremendous. Well, or you end up as, you know, Apple, Amazon, Tesla, where it's completely different, even though it's a word that people, you know, probably need. That's right. Apple's a very common word, of course, but has nothing to do with computers. And so it's unique for that. And Amazon, right, of course, is a well-known place, but nobody ever thought of it as a, as a brand name. And it ties in, Amazon's like a good example, because it ties in a little bit with their brand. I mean, their original thing was it was going to be this, you know, sort of, the long river, the long tail of products building this huge book database that would be out there whenever, even if people were searching for, for one specific thing instead of just what's the best seller today. Um, and so it has some value. And then Amazon's a great logo as well because uh, it's very subtle, but the little smile arrow in Amazon actually goes from A to, a to Z, Z. Yeah. which is supposedly and makes sense subliminal for like we carry everything from a to z 
And it's yeah, a smile, which makes you happy. Sorry, go, go ahead. No, I, I always love that one. Like the logos you've seen so often, and then they've got like the, you know, 50 things you didn't catch, and that's one of them. Um, and then you can't not see it after that. Exactly. So exactly. The, the other one I liked is if you flip the Chicago Bulls logo upside down, it looks like a robot reading a book. I've not seen that one. Well, <laughs> I, will. Afterwards. I will Google it. <laughs> so, all right. Um, so our... As we get towards the end, our next episode is going to air on Thursday, 1.30 Eastern time with Guy Sakalakis, who will talk about how you define your success in law as well as how to stay successful. So for those of you that had not had the opportunity to hear from Guy with Attorney Sync, um, very similar to me, I hope he'll agree with that because I mean it in a positive way. So we'll have a nice chat on success in law and how to stay successful. But Eric, I'm not going to let you go without that golden nugget of wisdom. You know, you've had your firm since the 90s, since the last millennium, got in there just in time with uh, 3,500 clients you've helped through the trademark stuff, you know, obviously working on the other side. So you've had a, a ton of success here. What would be the biggest piece of advice that you would want to give to an attorney, either, you know, very new to this whole process or really trying to get back on track so that they too can be the exhibit A of a successful attorney? Yeah. And I'm certainly not the first one to say it, but I believe that it is super important, which is don't be afraid to share content, share expertise. Um, many lawyers I know don't want to give away free consultations, don't want to have articles explaining a concept on their blog or their website because they're afraid that people will see less value in using an attorney. I believe it's entirely the opposite, that by showing people all the pieces of a trademark exam, uh, trademark registration or application of creating a strong brand, by showing them all those pieces, I mean, I think I'm in, inherently uh, showing them that it's really complicated and that you might be able to do it yourself, but at best it would be risky and require a ton of work and that you're much better off hiring an expert. So from day one, I, I've been blogging for you know many, many years now, now doing podcasts and videos and sharing tons of content and not be afraid to share that I'm an expert in the field. And I believe that that's what attracts people to me and helps differentiate from others. And then in terms of the search engine optimization, it's also tremendous because I've got hundreds if not thousands of pages out there, some of which are very, very, very specific. And... Um, I've gotten calls that have led to big clients out of some very, very specific, narrow blog posts. It only mattered as if one person ever read that blog post, if it was the right person. So one amazing way to explain that you have an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. Two, though, I'm going to take full credit for what you said. I put that out of the universe literally today. My, uh, my Facebook post was verbatim, almost verbatim what you said. <laughs> And because the, the pushback is what, like someone's going to watch your one video and do it themselves. Imagine how much of a pain in the ass that client would be. Like if that's all they need to do this, they're going to have absolutely no care for you. They're not going to trust you. They're not going to believe what you want to say because in your, you know, three minute video, you've convinced them of your, you know, 30 something years of experience that they can do it just as well. And that person was probably destined to do it themselves anyways, whether they found your video or somebody else's. Yeah. Makes subtle sense. Wonderful. I, that is that is a great point. And I don't know if anybody else has had that on the show, um, but I am a I'm a true believer of what you said as well, right in that. So please, anybody sitting there like, oh my God, you do not have something so magical and mystical 
that nobody else can do it. And if you don't share it, somebody else will. But if you do share it, your that could be the thing that pushes your ideal client over the edge to truly trust you and truly know that you are the attorney for them out of the 1.3 million of us. So I love it. Well said. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Exhibit A Attorneys. If you're interested in becoming the Exhibit A of successful attorney, please check us out at LegalEaseMarketing.com, E-A-S-E.